I'm Becky Quick of CNBC and your host of The Forum. I will be guiding you through exclusive conversations among some of the world's global leaders, conversations previously held behind club doors. The Economic Club of New York serves as the premier forum for nonpartisan discussion, dedicated to connecting the world's brightest minds with preeminent public and private sector leaders. A nonprofit 501c3, the club is a 115-year-old platform for the conversations that help shape the future of our world. The Economic Club of New York, brightest minds, critical conversations, catalyst for innovation. Welcome to another episode of The Forum. Today, we'll hear from five global industry leaders on the challenges in the transition to a low-carbon energy future, possible paths forward, and potential impact on the global economy. Before we jump in, let's understand why a low-carbon footprint is so important. Scientists say that in order to avert the worst possible impacts of climate change and preserve a livable planet, global temperature increase needs to be limited to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Currently, the Earth is about 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer than it was in the late 1800s, and emissions continue to rise. To keep global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, scientists say emissions need to be reduced by 45% by the year 2030 and reach net zero by 2050. Net zero refers to cutting greenhouse gas emissions to as close as zero to possible, with any remaining emissions reabsorbed from the atmosphere. So where does this all fit in in the world of business? ESG, or environmental, social, and governance issues, have been a major conversations in boardrooms, not without a lot of controversy on both sides of this issue. Right now, though, 34% of the world's largest companies say that they are committed to net zero emissions by the year 2030. But there's much more work that needs to be done before any of them can possibly reach that goal. So what are the challenges at hand? Let's start with Michael Wirth, the chairman and CEO of Chevron, who puts the path ahead into clear context. You hear a lot of talk about the energy transition, and it sounds as if it's happening immediately. And Um, It'll be done by the end of this decade, or there's a lot of round numbers by 2030 this, by 2040 that. 20 years ago, uh, and there's a couple of different sources of data, so there's tiny variations. The world, roughly 84% of the world's primary energy was fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas. 20 years later, trillions of dollars investment, a lot of progress in wind and solar and electric vehicles. We've gone from 84 to 82%. So that shows you the rate of change. It shows you the scale of the energy system. A 2% decrease in energy usage may seem like a small number to some, but think about taking a 2% cut in your salary, and you may see things a little differently. What's the holdup in getting to some of these levels? Why does it take so much time and money? Worth goes on to further expand on why not every country in the world may be prioritizing this. What was really hard for a lot of people to understand is the scale of what keeps the lights on, the trains running, the planes flying, the Amazon truck delivering to your house every day. And, um, and this happens around the world for 8 billion people, only a billion or so who live like we do. And, and a lot of this discussion happens where the people who live like we do, you know, are having the conversation. There's another two to three billion people in the kind of emerging middle class in, in developing countries are beginning to experience a, a lifestyle that most of us grew up in. And uh, there's another, you know, four to five billion people on the planet that probably in their lifetime will never see it. There's a billion people on this planet that don't have electricity. There's two and a half billion people that still cook indoors with biomass or animal dung. And and the, and the um, air quality and the the health conditions that come with that are just heartbreaking. And and so there's a, there's a, it's a 
it's a big planet with a lot of needs and um, and we have to help advance uh, you know good solutions for everybody and uh, you know economic uh, prosperity energy security and environmental protection all matter but if you go to sub-saharan Africa the priorities are different than they are in um, in, in Western Europe and we have to respect the fact that in a country that needs clean water sanitation, uh, a functional medical system, better schools, an economy that uh, creates jobs and progress and wealth to deal with the, their priorities, uh, we need to meet them on their terms as opposed to impose our view uh, on those countries. And I travel to a lot of places that um, are very sad in terms of the, 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 you know, the, the quality of life. And we try to make it a little bit better by investing in the economies, creating jobs and, and helping you know, advance economic progress. But, you know, first world solutions and third world settings don't always work. And so that's part of the pace. And it's part of why I think Larry says it's, it's many decades, not just a few years. I think that's the reality of how, you know, things are really likely to unfold. These are some very valid points. It's difficult when developing countries are doing their best just to provide basic living necessities to their citizens. This puts into perspective just how massive an undertaking this is, and we can see that speed of progress is one that is a very big challenge. And while time is certainly of the essence, the actual amount of money and time needed to make lasting change isn't always realistic. Ray Dalio, the founder, co-chairman, and co-CIO of Bridgewater Associates, explains. And so there's now, um, in my opinion, very fortunately, um, there's a movement to uh, climate and e- ESG and uh, such things. And, um, th- but the issue really, if you look at um, the amount of time we have to uh, make the changes that we agree are needed, you know, for example, estimated $20 trillion uh, has to go into that in, com- in, in various ways. There, there, we have very short of time. And we are very early in the adjustment process of building and adjusting for the technology. We haven't uh, replaced fossil fuels yet. And and this is going to be very inflationary because um, literally um, as you're making those choices and you're putting a lot of money, you've got to create a lot of money. We have a limited amount of hard money, so you have to produce more you have to fund it more with debt, with monetization, and it'll be uh, a more inflationary. And so that becomes a very, very difficult thing. And actually, the likelihood of achieving those goals and objective, there'll be progress made. But, you know, anyway, we'll see. But it is certainly a risk. This movement is more than just committing to make a change. It has a ripple effect in almost every aspect of our lives, particularly within our economy. A second challenge is actually measuring the success, accountability, and credibility of climate change efforts. We'll hear from Mark Carney, the United Nations Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance, who believes that governments' climate strategies often lack credibility. Let's hear what else he has to say. The issue with climate is that in a number of countries, not all, uh, in a number of countries, climate is a decisive uh, factor or important factor for being elected. But then once governments are in place, they do exactly what you uh, identified, which is to skimp on the measures. And the point 
we're getting across in this is drawing out in 85 pages of detail and argument and um, uh, and structure is to show the cost of that um, inconsistency, that time inconsistency. Because if you can, as a country, have a credible and predictable climate strategy, and the market has the information it needs from companies and others, and we'll get to that, I'm sure, the market will pull forward the adjustment. It'll smooth the adjustment. So by the time you get down the road, and let's say for sake of argument, part of your climate strategy is a carbon price. By the time that carbon price is higher, hey, lo and behold, the economy's already adjusted uh, to that carbon price. But if it's stop, start, stop, start, and then eventually there has to be a very, very hard climate policy put in place, it's extremely costly. Um, and that's what we're playing with is this is a direct, uh, direct analogy um, uh, between central bank credibility and climate policy credibility. It's as much a message to the policymakers across the aisle as it is to what we need to build in the financial sector. Michael Wirth emphasizes how continuity and clarity in policy could strengthen the U.S. economy. You know, it's, it's interesting. Most countries that I deal with Energy is really important and they understand it and they have um, a very clear point of view on policy because they're either a big importer and their economy is reliant on it. So think Japan, mm-hmm. Korea, they got a very clear view on how they, they think about energy or their economy uh, depends on export revenue. So you can, you can think Saudi Arabia, you can think some of the West African countries, uh, but around the world, most countries either rely on it for input to their economy or it's a big part of their export economy. The U.S. Um, has both the blessing and kind of the curse of being the world's largest producer and the world's largest consumer, and it can afford to be a little sloppy because um, we, we're both, and um, and because we've got all these great companies and, um, and deep capital markets, uh, industry and the economy kind of responds to and ameliorates some of the uh, effects of a lack of policy continuity and clarity. Um, over time, I think policy continuity and clarity over time would actually be a real, it would contribute more strength to our economy. Let's turn now to John Waldron, the president and chief operating officer of the Goldman Sachs Group, who echoes a similar sentiment about the lack of credible and clear measurement of climate change policy on the corporate side. You know, I think it's an alphabet soup of metrics out there. So if you're running a company today, it's very hard to know exactly what you're going to be held accountable for and what your constituents, whether they're your people inside your firm or your shareholders or rating agencies or other external constituents, government, society at large, what are you going to be held accountable for? I think this is going to be a real area of focus for the next handful of years is to try to figure out how to create some standards, you know, whether they're created by the government or by the markets or by some combination of the two. That's going to be, I think, a real complexity for most companies to navigate going forward. Would you like to be a part of the conversations at the Economic Club of New York? Learn more about membership, the New York City and National Fellows programs, and other opportunities for engagement in the club at www.econclubny.org. Having a better set of standards and accountability is certainly a must. Without clarity, credibility, and measurement, a third challenge arises. Mark Carney explains more. And there's a couple of reasons why it hasn't been built into the market. If we're talking about the trends, let's let's define the it. Um, it's the transition to net zero. Is that built into the market? Because ultimately, in order to stabilize the climate at one and a half degrees, two degrees, three degrees, four degrees, 
you have to get to net zero at some point. And the question is, what's the arc uh, in terms of where you're going to get there? And uh, for the market to build that in, that needs information, it needs climate disclosure. It needs a sense of how relevant the transition is for the company. Uh, and again, I'll use my carbon price a- a- analogy. It's it's about much more than carbon prices. But you know, if the carbon price is going from 10 to 20 to 50 to $100 over the next decade, um, how much, how much does that matter for a company? What does it have to adjust? Um, and uh, it also goes back to this credibility point. Now, there are bits of the market, and I'll finish on this uh, to answer, there are parts of the market where this is built in. So if you look at the cost of capital on the renewable side versus the cost of capital for offshore oil, heavy oil, deep oil, the cost of capital is somewhere between a third and a quarter on the renewable side today as it is on the heavy oil side, if you look at the shadow carbon price that you can calculate on the basis of those differentials, it's somewhere in the $80 mark, $80 a ton. But that's not applied across the whole market. That's the point. It's it's applied in the extremes, the extremes of renewables, the extremes of heavier fossil fuels. And what's going to happen if we are going to get to net zero is we're going to need the whole of the economy to transition and we're going to need to unpack who are, who's ahead of the game, who's behind uh, in terms of that transition in industrials, in consumer products, in tech, uh, and in finance. Okay, um, And let me explain that. What's happening is that more and more companies, and you see it every day, are making these net zero commitments. The core of those commitments is to reduce absolute emissions, you know, getting um, uh, renewable power, uh, reducing their carbon footprint, uh, re- repurposing processes, all these sorts of things. But at the same time, to have the trajectory, they are buying some offsets or they will buy some offsets if there is a market, if there is a market for a period of time. Low carbon emissions are a global issue that need global cooperation. But historically, we swing between competition and cooperation over a shared threat. Jake Sullivan, United States National Security Advisor, argues that we are at a moment of both. If you look back over the last few decades, the pendulum in U.S. foreign policy has tended to swing from a real emphasis on geopolitical competition to an emphasis on more of the transnational threats. And we've now arrived at a moment where we're having to contend with acute geopolitical competition at the same moment that we have to contend with acute, even existential transnational threats. And those two things do not necessarily sit comfortably side by side because geopolitical competition does squeeze the space for cooperation to solve these challenges. And the nature of these challenges, energy insecurity, food insecurity, technological disruption, uh, a global pandemic can in fact create dynamics that only exacerbate competition on the other side because they fuel greater instability of various forms that, that, that bring some a degree of entropy into the system. It seems that everything going on globally is creating the perfect storm of chaos and competing interests. Ray Dalio agrees that we're at a moment of geopolitical competition. Let's hear what he has to say. And that happened. So history has shown that there are, um, you know, five types of competitions, or we can call wars, that happen between countries. Uh, that is a, a trade war a technology war, a geopolitical influence war, 
a capital war and a, and a military war. You can have you can have all of those. We certainly have the first four wars or competitions going on, and we certainly have um, the uh, the military um, competition. We haven't um, killed each other yet, but we have that risk. And so then when you have a country, uh, an empire sort of weakening internally at the same time as there's challenges from abroad, um, that um, that is a riskier set of circumstances. Yeah. And that's the type of circumstances we're now in, I think. Dalio cites some foreboding circumstances, and while the threat of these different wars sounds scary, there are many global initiatives that bring a silver lining. First and foremost, there is much more room for global collaboration. John Waldron shares an optimistic tone around climate change and sustainability. We're hopeful that there could be real areas of collaboration around climate and sustainability. You know, I think some of the recent discussions, whether it was Kerry's trip to China or some of the converse, you know, some of the narrative between the two countries uh, and the desire for Biden and President Xi to get together, hopefully to talk about areas of cooperation like around climate. We certainly believe green finance is a big opportunity for the United States and China to come together to figure out how to marshal private capital to support public capital and driving towards net zero emissions around the world. And obviously the US and China will be the big drivers of that. So that's a real area of possible cooperation. So what's the key to fostering global cooperation? Jake Sullivan outlines the path forward for international order in a three-part plan. The first step is to really reinforce the fundamental foundation of like-minded democratic market economies and develop a common agenda with those countries uh, to drive towards a set of economic outcomes that end up really delivering for people both in our own societies and around the world on everything from how we make sure to grow uh, and expand the middle class to how we address uh, difficult economic challenges from food security uh, to energy security uh, to the energy and climate transition. So the president has put a lot of effort into really revitalizing and rejuvenating the G7 as a kind of steering committee for the free world. Uh, after years in which the G7 was a little bit listless and uncertain about where its direction. The second step is to engage a broader set of emerging economies uh, to deal with a set of challenges that no one country can deal with on their own. And that's what this G20 summit will be all about. And if you look at these big questions of food and energy and sovereign debt, um, the impacts and the continuing effects of the pandemic and how we have to be prepared for the next pandemic, Fundamentally, this larger project is about de delivering global public goods in a way that is sustainable, where responsibility is broadly shared, and where everybody can benefit. And the president is looking to make real progress at this G20 on those core issues that are not just on the front of government's minds, but on the front of the minds of regular families in this country and uh, around the world. And then the third element is how to update the international financial institutions so they're actually up to the task that we face today. Secretary Yellen gave a major speech a couple of weeks ago on a reform of the multilateral development banks, including the World Bank. There is so much more upside uh, available to us in terms of what we can do with the international financial institutions and multilateral development banks to, to deliver on these global public goods. 
From developing a common agenda to engaging a broader set of emerging economies to deal with challenges to updating the international financial institutions to handle the tasks at hand, Sullivan has laid out a solid strategic plan. Now, let's turn to Mark Carney, who is confident that we can build a sustainability plan into a market that has the potential to change the world when we add clarity and attach value to it. I mean, one thing I think we should recognize is about 60%, 65% of decarbonization is economic today. Okay, the technologies exist, you can put it in place. It's, and so it's a question of capital turnover and restructuring. There is another, and then there's another 15 or so percent, which is on the margin, and it depends on government policy that could make it economic. And then there's about 20%, which is, let's call it venture, right? So hydrogen, direct air carbon capture, sustainable aviation uh, fuels. And what this process is in place, let me answer the question, answer the question and make a bigger point, if I may. What do we make of these net zero plans? They're like anything that comes into play. They're of uneven quality. Um, uh, you know, some companies have an objective, they have a clear plan, they have milestones that go out the next five years, they tie executive compensation to meeting those milestones, they have the technologies, you know, you can track it um, that way. Other companies have the objective and they're gonna figure it out. Um, but as a whole, what we need in order to get to where we need to get to and where, you know, in 126 countries and counting, it is the objective of the country to get to net zero. And the president-elect has made it clear that in the U.S. Uh, he intends to be in clean energy by 2035 and net zero by 2050. In order to get there, we do need this whole economy transition. And I think, Andrew, what this process does, you figure out which companies have the right plans and need to be backed with capital, and that's going to be a driver of value. You figure out which companies don't have a plan and they're going to be punished ultimately for that because they're going to lag. But you also can see in, in, in the market, you can see, well, which are the big technologies that if I can unlock hydrogen in industrial processes, which is a probability, well, that's going to be incredibly valuable. Um, and so the it shines a light on where the huge opportunity set is. Mark Carney continues by underscoring the important role and impact the investment community plays in ESG. I think that um, the best in the investment community, and this has long been the case, anticipate where things are going. They get out in front of it. They, they, they catalyze change. Same true in the corporate sector, but there's also, you know, that's the spearhead on the corporate sector. You can see certain companies who are out in front have anticipated there are moving, but in general, to get mainstream change, uh, you need those investors who see where the world is going. Now, where's the world going? I said a moment ago, you got 126 countries plus soon the United States with net zero objectives. That is not gonna happen in a niche. That's gonna happen across the whole economy. That is gonna be a driver of value, okay? That's, this, is, this, is, this is why we say this consistently, uh, is that uh, this is one of the biggest commercial opportunities not just because of the scale of investment, although at three and a half trillion a year globally dollars, that's pretty big and you know gets even you know your attention and some of the investors uh, online, but also because and it goes back to a question you asked a, a few moments ago, which is how much of this is in the market? The answer is some, but not all. So part of the judgment here is who really has a plan, who's ahead of the game, 
and what can I do? I mean, one thing I'm doing in the private, my private sector life is actually around this, which is to help companies with the transition from being above the line, if you will, to getting below the line uh, on, on the transition towards net zero. And that, that creates real, real right. value. Carney makes a few interesting points, especially the effort it will take to make a mainstream change in the corporate sector. Next, Michael Worth comments on the significance of ESG initiatives and how it sometimes can become more polarizing than cohesive in our society. I think what's happened is uh, ESG has become uh, kind of really a polarizing uh, principle as opposed to uh, one that, that brings people together. And it's part of a debate where everything has been pulled to extremes and you're either um, you, you're either uh, for preserving the planet or you're for destroying the planet. You're either uh, in favor of a diverse workforce or you're, uh, uh, you know, absolutely, you know, opposed to any kind of, and the reality is it's a big complicated world. You have to work on all of these things to move them along. And so what I hear from our mainstream shareholders, and of course we have shareholders across the spectrum who we, we engage with and listen to is they want to see us do things to um, protect the environment, to reduce our, our carbon emissions. And we're investing a lot of money to do that. They want to see us, uh, engage in uh, communities and with our workforce in a way that respects the differences and creates opportunity for everybody. They want to see good governance so we don't have some sort of financial blow up or other problem because we have bad governance. Uh, but they're not necessarily arguing that we go do um, extreme things. And so uh, some of the loudest voices oftentimes are the ones that are the furthest from the center. Most of our shareholders are down the middle of the fairway. And, uh, and we engage in conversations all the time about uh, how we advance uh, our business to create value and do it in a responsible way. Shareholders obviously have varying views when it comes to ESG. Now, let's hear more thoughts from Michael Wirth, who believes that there's a way to transition to a low-carbon energy system that's both stable and adds immense value. What I try to talk about is an orderly transition, which is one that is stable, that's predictable, where supplies are reliable, where markets are, 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 are you know, stable and prices are, are not as volatile as what we've seen right now. And we deliver a lower carbon energy system. I ask our company to do two things. And, and every employee in our company would tell you the answer to this question, higher returns, lower carbon. We need to generate higher returns because we've got to we've got to create value for our shareholders and we've got to deliver lower carbon because that's what the world expects. You got to do them both at the same time, and it can be done, uh, but you have to do it with a balanced approach. We can be a big part of advancing the lower carbon energy system as we meet the needs of today's economy and build the systems that will supply tomorrow's economy in a lower carbon way. Uh, we can do that in a way that's balanced that can reduce some of these risks and can enable an orderly transition. What could an economic transition look like? Here's Mark Carney. To go back to this core issue, that if we are going to get to net zero, we need a whole economy transition. And so we need to take the big energy companies that have a plan to move towards you know, lower carbon solutions, uh, the big industrials who have plans, back them with capital and get them to move as opposed to just shun them across the board. You've been listening to The Forum by the Economic Club of New York, a nonprofit 501c3 dedicated to connecting the world's brightest minds for critical nonpartisan conversations. Be sure to subscribe now to be alerted to future new episodes. Would you like to be a part of the conversations at the Economic Club of New York? 
Learn more about membership, the NYC and National Virtual Fellows programs, and other opportunities for engagement in the club at www.econclubny.org. I'm your host, Becky Quick. Thanks for listening.